You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Thanks for listening. My name is Scott Corbin, and I serve as the Assistant Operations Director and Editor for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I am delighted today to be joined by Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria is a former tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. After her conversion to Christianity in 1999, she developed a ministry to college students. She has taught and ministered at Geneva College and is a full-time mother, part-time author, and occasional speaker. She is the author of two books, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and her newest, Openness Unhindered. Rosaria, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's my great pleasure. I want to start by asking you to share a little bit of your story for those who might not know you, hmm. um, and also to uh, basically kind of recount the story you tell in your first book, Secret yeah. Thoughts of an yeah. Unlikely Convert. Well, you know, like all stories, we could be here for hours, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that probably the gist of it is that when... Um, when I had finished uh, uh, the book that I needed for tenure, I was an English professor and um, had just finished a tenure book, and I was ready to, to do something that I was that was really meaningful to me. I wanted to write a book that had had a, a, a signature of my integrity on it, and so I decided to write a book um, critiquing the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. Mm. And I did that because I was quite baffled why. Um, I would meet supposedly Christians at gay pride marches with with placards, and um, and the level of hate and anger was was frightening and confusing. And so I I embarked on a on a research project um, to study this. And I'm an English professor. I'm not an anthropologist, so I don't go and you know interview people and say how do you feel about that. You know I actually read things, and and I needed to read the Bible, and. Um, at, at the same time that I started uh, reading the Bible, I uh, the Promise Keepers came to the university, and I really don't remember what what they did. You know, what great offense! Maybe my favorite parking spot was gone <laughs> that day. I mean, it wasn't major, but um, but I wrote what I thought was just a little a little editorial. They you know they gave me a full page. It was an op ed, and it generated a lot of mail, hate mail, and fan mail. And one came from Pastor Ken Smith, who was then the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And it was um, um, really based on that letter that we started a friendship. Hmm. And it was based on that friendship that I started not just reading the Bible for my research, but also for my life. Hmm. And, um, and it was then that, um, that I was convicted that indeed uh, the person of God and the word of God are inseparable. And although I had identified uh, as an atheist um, for most of my life, um, I had um, come out as a lesbian when I was 28. I um, was pretty confident. I knew myself better than this ancient book that had never had any contact with me. That book changed everything. Mm. And... Um, and I decided to write about it in, in my, my um, which is not my first book. It's my first book as a Christian. So yeah. I have a bit of a legacy prior, <laughs> prior to this. But, um, but um, my, my, my first, you know, post-Galatians 2.20 book, That's right. yeah. um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And I did that because um, I wanted my children to know that I am not all cleaned up, that I stand in the risen Christ and 
He is cleaned up for me. Hmm. Praise the Lord. One of the things that was interesting, so I, I got Secret Thoughts when it first came out, and I loved it, but it seemed that within a short period of time after the book came out, it, it kind of was starting to create a buzz. It was, yeah. you know, and there's kind <clears throat> of a, I, I, you've told me the story, there's kind of a joke about how you wrote this book <laughs> expecting for it to be for like a thousand people or something. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, a thousand. Right. that's what, that's what yeah. the first print run was. Yeah, that's ex- <laughs> and so, and so, but it was interesting because after the book was released, now all of a sudden it's getting picked up by a lot of different people saying, listen to this great story. And not only yeah. was it, I think, a story that touched, that kind of really impacted a lot of people in terms of seeing how this conversion experience, which I love how you liken to a car crash. Um, but in particular, too, I mean, it's it's great writing. And so I'm curious, what was it like after Secret Thoughts came out? And kind of what was the story from yeah. post-Secret Thoughts to, we'll say, now? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we really did only publish a thousand copies. And I, I think it was sold at a family camp where mm-hmm. Ken Smith was retiring. It was very much just to honor him and, and thank him for being a faithful pastor. And uh, we had no advertisement. I published with Crown and Covenant Publication. We um, we published Psalters and a few other books that Reformed Presbyterians, you know, <laughs> seek to write. I mean, it just it couldn't be, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't trying to sell this book. Yeah, I don't know what right, else to right. say. Uh, but then when it started to get really big, I remember talking to Ken Smith on the phone. We talk frequently. Ken is yeah. still, you know, alive and well. In fact, we just spoke last night. Um, I said, Ken, if I if I knew all these people would be reading this book, I never would have published it. <laughs> and he said, Rosaria, is the Lord still having to work yeah. with your disobedience? Yeah. So you know, I nobody cuts me any slack. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it it was it was startling to me because mm. um, I had really enjoyed my new life. You know, mm. when I was a professor and a tenured professor, I had a public life. I, I taught classes and gave lectures and, and spoke to thousands of people at a time and handled feisty Q&As. And, 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 so, and, and then when the Lord completely changed me, and it was, you know, when I say change, we'll have to talk about what that means because sure. there are a lot of wacky things going on yeah. Yeah, around that word. But I yeah. very much felt, in the words of Thomas Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. That's Wasn't right. that old temptations just disappeared? But there is this new affection called Jesus, hmm. and that meant that meant everything. But um, you know, when that when that happened, I suddenly it became very important to really go inward. And so, um, and and then when when Kent and I got married and we started um, we started uh, fostering and adopting children, you know, I just had ten years in my house. I mean, it was a bit of a joke. I could get about you know three thousand steps on the you know, on, on the little stepper counter thing <laughs> without ever leaving my home because yeah. I was chasing children around all day. Mm. And I really loved that. And during that time, I was writing this book, but it was all very private. Mm. And I had no desire mm. to go back into the spotlight. Mm. Um, but the Lord had equipped me to do that and, and, um, and is now sending me back into the world that I helped create. And I have no right to think that it would have been otherwise. Hmm. Hmm. So you just came out with a new book, Openness Unhindered. Yeah. yeah. Which I was very uh, glad to read this summer. Over the summer, I, I picked up a copy at the PCA, thanks to Crown and Covenant. <laughs> um, and uh, the thing I thought that was most interesting about it was, like I said, I read Secret Thoughts when it first came out. Yeah. I loved it. 
Um, and then, but this book feels a little bit more straightforward, mm-hmm. didactic, kind of a mm-hmm. more exposition of mm-hmm. certain types of thoughts that were in Secret Thoughts. Yeah. And kind of the way that I, whenever I was thinking about it was, it's kind of how, yeah, I'm a theology nerd, so I'm going to make a theology oh, yeah, illustration. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> but, um, but kind of like how Augustine's Confessions is a basically the experience of grace. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. him talking about this grace that he's experienced, but then... Right. You read his later writings against the Pelagians, and right. he's talking in kind of a more didactic fashion about mm-hmm. this grace that has transformed him in the confessions. And so my question is, when did you get the idea to write Openness Unhindered? Um, and also, what are you hoping to accomplish with this book, right. um, which is obviously a different situation. You're not it writing is. to just a thousand people anymore. No, so, no, that's so what right. are you hoping to accomplish with this book? That's right. Well, <clears throat> I'm very thankful that the the... the, the the, the impetus for this book really are the protesters that mm. come and uh, come to protest in yeah. some ways. And also the um, <clears throat> the people who are just sort of standing on the sidelines who just mm. say, you know, who would ever believe this stuff? Mm. You know, I mean, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, let's let's keep the crazy in Christianity. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is it is a supernatural um, gestalt. It is mm. not a cleaned up story, and Jesus did not come to make us, you know, ha- ha- have a nice, happy little life. Mm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, I, what I wanted to do really in, in Openness Unhindered was to answer some of those hard questions that um, gay rights activists mm. or um, people who identify as both Christian and gay affirming, which means practicing homosexuality, are asking me as I travel, and yeah. and I have the great benefit to count many of the people who are my, um, in some ways, opponents as as friends, mm. and so I although Christ has commandeered my my life, and and when 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 Christ enters into a life, you know the bridge that you had to walk on to get to Him is burned. You, there's no going mm. back. But I was not lobotomized. Hmm. I remember the fear. I remember the uh, the the desire. Hmm. I remember the sense that um, when I first came out as a lesbian, I was so glad because I felt like this is finally who I am. I remember that I'm not. I have not forgotten it. And I wanted to write a book that might explain to the two audiences that I have, both the Bible believing Christians who say things like, "Well." Why would anybody feel that way? Um, and also to um, to the silent, struggling Christians who are saying, I can't tell anybody I feel that way. To the unbelievers who say, why are Christians opposing what, um, you know, what Freud and others has already declared as good? Hmm. And I wanted to give some of the theology and some of the, the backstory to that. Yeah, that's great. Which leads to my next question. So most of the talk surrounding your work has been focused around, like you were saying, <clears throat> ministering to same-sex attracted um, people, right. both within the church um, and and outside, and also the LGBT community. Uh, but you make it abundantly clear in this book that all of us who are in Christ come as broken sexual sinners. Yeah. That's something right. you make clear from the get-go, that we are all broken sexual sinners. And after you make that clear, you then speak with a robustly theological vocabulary um, and so you've got chapter titles. I was kind of joking with a friend about this, that 
chapter titles that some might think would better belong in a theology textbook, mm-hmm. you know, than, right. than, than maybe a book that's kind of talking about some of these issues. Yeah. But yet you still have this ability to make things like union with Christ, doctrine of sin, temptation, all these things seem so practical. Oh, good. And so one of the questions I have for you is how important is it for Christians as Christians to have a theological vocabulary and to basically see the world theologically? Yeah, it's, it, it, this is a no-brainer. It is required. Yeah. We are now in a world where Christians are, um, if not despised right now, we will be. Mm. We um, are likened to racists and bigots and even our, our, our desire to uphold a biblical world and life view is seen as an attack on the integrity <clears throat> of other human beings. Mm. And if Christians do not have a deep and abiding fluency with the Bible and the, the theological flexibility mm. to work through it in a, in a way that allows the gay neighbors you love and the unbelievers across the street to have some bridge to Christ, if you don't do it, it won't be done. Mm. And that is why I like to think about hospitality really as a, a, an arm of spiritual warfare. Yeah, The gospel is going to be won and lost. Hearts are going to be transformed or forgotten mm. based on the conversations that people are having at the kitchen table. That's right. With the door open to other neighbors. Mm. This idea that what you're going to do is have a great quote unquote outreach event at your church and bring people in. Well, I don't know what these big mega churches are going to be doing. Yeah. I I really don't. I mean, except for to say as a homeschool mom, those church buildings are ideal co-op, homeschool co-op <laughs> locations. So let me just say it is not all lost. There's hope. But if you think that a program will yeah. bring people into a conversation that has already been dismissed by the Supreme Court mm. in its redefinition of personhood, mm. we're, 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 we're playing this from the wrong angle. Yeah. So each person, each mom, you know, who might be listening to this in the van with three kids, you're needed. Yeah. Yeah. And even seeing the importance of open tables, oh, open yeah. homes. Crucial. Yeah. And what that means for in terms of Christian right. witness, how we love our right. neighbors well. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ken Smith knew with me, uh, because I did, I, I asked him at one point, how come you never invited me to church? You know, was I chopped liver? I mean, <laughs> how, how, how did this happen? You know, there's yeah. a rule book about how Christians deal with heathens like me, and you just threw it away, and you, you know, there I was going to get in my car and drive, and yeah. maybe I was going to get hit by a car. Wouldn't it be all your fault? I mean, come on, you know, did you not read the book? Yeah. I read the book. And he said, Rosaria. There is no way I could invite you to church. I had to bring the church to you. Yeah. And that's what we all need to do. That's fantastic. And it's actually funny because my next question is related to that. <laughs> um, again, so coming coming away from openness unhindered, there is a strong sense that uh, the local church is a place where we need to be thinking about not only our transformation, but the transformation of our people yes. who are in the local church. Yes. And... Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting was um, in the midst of all this, you emphasize, and again, I thought this was so kind of countercultural in a, in a humorous way, the emphasis that you have in terms of wanting to think about reaching neighbors, reaching LGBT community, 
was highlighting the normal means of grace in a local church. Right. And so I would be, right. I would love for you to maybe elaborate on why should churches consider the importance um, and thinking about why they should care about basically the normal means of grace. And if you can even define, sure, you talk about that absolutely. in the book, so if you could define that, that'd be helpful for absolutely. our Absolutely. Well, the, the means or the ways of grace are those um, completely accessible, um, approachable uh, um, um, practices that God has given every human being to know him and love him. Mm. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so the means of grace are Bible reading and prayer, um, uh, preaching of the word, mm -hmm. taking of the sacraments. Mm -hmm. um, now, and, and, and as an extension of that would be church membership. Yeah. And, and those are, and th the other thing about the means of grace is that that's where the power of the gospel resides. That's right. So when you are reading your Bible, you are ingesting the word of God. You are at a feast mm. and you are no longer living on a starvation diet. Mm. You are fed and it will, it, will, it will work not only through you, but through other people. You know, Christians can be very selfish about mm. their morning devotions. And I think it's so funny that it's called <clears throat> quiet time. And there's no homeschool mom out there who would call it <laughs> quiet time. Let me just tell you, there is nothing quiet, you know, about it. Even with your earplugs on, you can hear the walls vibrating. <laughs> you're just trusting in the Lord right. that you can get through this. But um, you're there for other people. You know, you have neighbors who who don't have a Bible, who don't know it. So, so those are the means of grace. And you know, if you are part of a church that's focused instead on performance mm. and experience, a feeling, um, great music, whatever, see, that's that's fine, I suppose. Yeah. But as soon as that service is over with, it's over with. Yeah. And you know what? You walk out. A starving person and here's the thing about starving people they can't eat a meal if they tried mm. so the means of grace is what feeds a person and 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 what what i like to think about is if it's that important then why is it so private mm. so if the means of grace are that important why is it that your neighbors know absolutely what kind of snow blower you have if you're in the northeast or <laughs> leaf blower if you're in you know durham or yeah. i am um <laughs> They know if you've got an electric fence for that 100-pound dog, but they don't know if you're a member of a church. Like, mm. Why is that? And so, so what, what I try to do is to think about how we can use hospitality and the relationships that we have with our neighbors, um, what uh, Dave Runyon calls in his book, The Art of Neighboring, and I mm. love that idea. It is an art. It's an art to be studied. Um, how we can make those means of grace transparent. And one of the ways to do it is to not be so bashful about them. Hmm. So in our home, if you come for dinner, dinner rolls right into psalm singing and family devotions. Hmm. And that's just what it, we don't ask your opinion. I mean, you know, <laughs> any more than we'd ask your opinion about whether, you know, what, you know, English curriculum we're going to yeah, use next right. year for the children. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, it rolls right in because yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. Um, and And so... So how to make those things transparent yeah. and vital and, and draw people in who would not even know what those things are sure. if you weren't right there praying with them. Yeah. And it's, it's even interesting hearing you talk about that 
and thinking about how the experience of worshiping on the Lord's Day mm-hmm. with your community mm-hmm. flows out of that into yes. an open home. Yes, it does. Into, in, into almost a liturgy <clears throat> of the home. It, it, yes, yeah. that's beautiful. I like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I, I think that we have based in um, conservative evangelical circles our understanding of community in the wrong place. I yeah. think we've we've tended to see it as a kind of Genesis 128, be, be fruitful and multiply. Sure. Um, and, and instead, I think we need to root it in the um, the biblical principle of adoption hmm. and in the keeping the Lord's Day holy. Yeah, which is so funny you mentioned that because I'm actually going to read from a little passage from your book, and I'm going to ask about the things that you just said. So okay. in Openness in 100, you say, quote, over the years, I have come to learn that Christian community is built strong when we, when we situate it on these two biblical principles, the paradigm of adoption and the fourth command, which is to keep the Lord's Day holy. We must think about the principle behind hospitality because Christian community must be intentionally crafted with prayer and sacrifice, end quote. I thought it was so fascinating that you, the two principles you say Mm -hmm. are things that maybe sometimes a lot of people would never even consider, you know, and for us non-Sabbatarians, you know, the fourth commandment, we're like, I don't, what what is going on there? Oh, I rebuke you, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, and so I'm just curious if you could maybe, again, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but just quickly, why Lord's Day worship and why adoption Right, 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 right. Um, Let's start with uh, the principle of adoption, because that is yeah. the principle by which we call um, our triune God Father. Hmm. Um, God uh, loves the stranger hmm. and and gave himself and his alien righteousness so that we could be covered, so that we could know and be known, so that we could um, flee to the means of grace in an instant whether we are in a, a dungeon or a prison cell mm. or um, a university classroom or, or anything in between. Mm. And so it is, it, is, it is a huge, powerful idea that you can never be unadopted by God, mm. but that your, both the righteousness that, that is now yours and the, the title son or daughter those are alien. Those do not come from any kind of natural gifting or goodness or, or likability in me. Um, but it's still fully mine. And, and when you think about the way that adoption permeates the rest of Scripture, you know, I, one of the things that we have to confront is this idea of, of how sin has broken the peace that we all desire, believers yeah. and unbelievers, we all want peace. Mm. But original sin has so powerfully distorted us and actual sin so functionally distracts us and indwelling sin so consistently manipulates us that we can't even begin to manage this on our mm. own. And so with the paradigm of adoption, we come to a verse like um, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. no temptation will befall you except for that which is common to man, and God will give you a way of escape. What if that way of escape is my home, hmm. but my door is locked, hmm. you know, because I've got cat hair on the couch you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, I'm just, aren't I also then culpable in some ways? I mean, hmm. if indeed adoption is as important as I'm saying it is, then our um, 
transparent accessibility must be known without sending a memo out that says, hey, you know, on the second Lord's Day of the month, you know, bring a covered dish. I mean, that's not, that, that's not going to cut it. So it's crucial because it stands between faith and doubt. It stands mm. between life and death. It stands between um, hope and despair. Mm. Adoption is crucial. Um, and then I am a Sabbatarian, and I tell you, I don't know how people live without keeping the Lord's Day holy. So I was kidding around that I was going to rebuke yeah, you. I, yeah. I won't do it online, Scott. But, you know, I, I, we'll not have. In front of all these kind but, of people. No, yeah. that's right. But we're not done yet um, because the 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 Sabbath was made for our good yeah. to have a day in seven that is completely devoted to the things of God mm. and that uh, uh, that nothing else is scheduled that day. Mm. You know, soccer games come and go. Um, and work is just, it's, it's a tireless, right, um, constant flow. But, but having a day that is truly set apart um, is has been I think it's been life saving for me, mm. especially in my my role now as a as a speaker and a mm. you know, an author and someone who's who's got a public uh, persona. To me, having that Lord's Day where it is me, the pastor's wife, me, mm. the pastor's wife, making communion bread every Lord's Day at five, me, the the Sunday school teacher for the for the children. That that is that is really powerful. But also then me, the neighbor who has a built-in day where, of course, I can help you find your lost dog. Of course, we can talk about your divorce. Of course, our children can busy themselves while we pray over what ails you. Of course, I'm home. We don't have to schedule it. It's part, it becomes part of one of the things that makes community safe and I'll tell you, this is a strange, it might be a strange thing to some of our listeners. It's not strange to me, but I learned this in my lesbian community. Mm. One of the things that makes community safe is its predictable sameness mm. and its open accessibility. Mm. That's good. In the LGBT community, it was, it's just standard that somebody's home is open every night of the week. Mm. And, and it, it just can stand between you and, and despair. And certainly Christians should do no less. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, and, and even before we move on, I <clears throat> again, there was another scene in the book which I loved, which was, I guess it was you and some church members would kind of set out a normal pattern where you would prayer walk around the neighborhood and then sing psalms at the very end. Is that right? And you know what? These were not church members. Yeah, okay. These are neighbors. Wow. Well, this was, I mean, Kent and I were the only, the only psalm singers. That's but, fantastic. You know, I yeah. love to sing. Yeah. You know, I just, I have a bit of Mary Poppins in me. So <laughs> I could teach you to sing a psalm yeah. right here on the yeah, air if you wanted right. to. Um, but no, we, we had just moved to Durham and mm. we uh, very much wanted for our home to be known as a house of prayer. Mm. And we wanted our neighbors to know that. And so we just put an, an email listserv out on the, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. And we said, um, you know, please join us for seven o'clock at the picnic table. And we moved our picnic table from the back of the house to the front of the house. You can't miss it. And mm -hmm. painted it green, so you really can't miss it. <laughs> and um, and that has become a um, uh, just a foundational thing. So every um, it's 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 been Thursday. We might need to move it to Monday now because of schedules that um, anywhere between, um, you know, two and 30 neighbors will show up. Mm. 
and we will walk through the neighborhood. And what we are doing specifically that night is we are praying for our neighbors and we are finding out what's, what some of the mercy needs are and, and trying to meet those. That's great. That's fantastic. So I'm going to ask a little bit of a different question. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, again, kind of from the first book, one of the things that really struck me was that a book that really played into your conversion was reading Kevin Van Hooser's Is There a Meaning in This Text? Yes. Which is so funny because yes. you would not find that on like the top of like, you know, what to give to your non-believing neighbor. Right, you know? right. Well, maybe if your non-believing yeah, neighbor has a that's right. was, in Yeah, English, that's right. That's exactly know? right. You know? know. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things though that's interesting mm-hmm. is that recent discussions surrounding legitimacy of same-sex behavior mm-hmm. for Christians, um, I think has especially centered around hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, Absolutely. And, um, and so kind of this affirming of um, certain types of things and, and right. basically hermeneutical theory right. leading to affirm same-sex behavior. Right. And so I'm curious to hear from you, how important yeah. is understanding the goodness of both maleness and femaleness yeah. um, and all of their beauty, splendor, and difference? Right. How important is that for Christians affirming a traditional view on sexual ethics? Yeah, yeah, that, you know, it's huge, and it's despised hmm. today, and it's intriguing to me as well. But I mean, I will tell you that when I first came to faith, the Lord did not zap me. Hmm. You know, I, I had someone once say to me, "So when did the yuck factor about homosexual hmm. sex just hit you upside the head?" And you know what? That's not what happened. It was the, the, the sinfulness of my <clears throat> sin unfolded in um, my, the, the Bible and its teachings and my, my understanding of it as a unified biblical revelation. So my, I have a PhD in English. Hermeneutics is one of my fields. I'm a whole book scholar. My job is to size up a book. And every book has an internal testimony. That's true whether it's Jane Eyre or Frankenstein or the Bible. And so I simply use the skills that I had been trained in as a secular professor to read this Bible. And it was became evident to me that it had a unified biblical revelation. And what that meant fundamentally was... I wasn't just dealing with six pesky verses yeah, that right. then had to be dismissed on a kind of on a kind of um, culture temperature taking. Mm. If the Bible is a unified biblical revelation, we don't read it verse a day mm. like we're reading a fortune cookie or our horoscope. That's right. And if we're doing that it that way, it's a you can actually sin against God mm. using the wrong hermeneutic. That's right. And so that is so so I couldn't I just couldn't fall into that trap because I had already studied it and understood something else although my flesh was was would be would have liked that you know yeah. in some ways. And so but one of the things then that that happened after that is at some point I really did have to confront the sin of my sexual lust. Hmm. And this was after I stopped having sex with women I still had to it, that wasn't it isn't just in the practice alone that mm-hmm. that our sin is 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 offensive to God. And so I had to think through, well, what exactly is my sin here? Mm-hmm. You know I mean, just what what is it? I mean, why can't I just sort of rest in the fact that I'm just kind of different in these ways? you know, and, and I had I will tell you that I had had a heterosexual past. And so, when I became a lesbian, I considered myself an informed lesbian. <laughs> I, I knew what I was missing, and I was happy to be missing it. And, you know, so that also played into, see, the more sin you accumulate, the harder yeah. it is to kind of work through this. 
but it 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 um and it was a slow process and you know waking up to your sin is a little bit like i imagine a drunk waking up in vomit hmm. um and then repentance is this kind of this this powerful moment where you are cleaned up through no hmm. effort of your own but it, one of the things that did strike me very early on is that the sin of homosexuality and the sin of homosexual lust is that it attacks a creation ordinance. Mm. And then I needed to go and study creation ordinances. And I needed to, to really work through whether the Bible had a gender essentialism or not. You know, I had been trained through Foucault and Butler to understand that sexuality and gender are social constructs. But if the Bible was true, if it's a guide for faith and life, if God is good, if God is holy, and if his, his integrity is then dependent on this Bible being unified in all of those ways, then I had to confront that attacking a creation ordinance is actually one of the worst things you can attack. Hmm. It's, it's different than anything else. It goes, it goes all the way back to the garden. And it was then that I started to pray that God would make me a godly woman. Hmm. And it was very, it was, you know, after that prayer, that prayer kind of bled into another one, which was a very, it was, it was very surprising to me that, but the, the, it was that the Lord would not only make me a godly woman, but would perhaps make me the godly wife of a godly husband someday. Mm. And that I would fulfill this gender essentialism that indeed was foundational to the Garden of Eden mm. and foundational to all of humanity. Mm. But it was a, a very surprising turnaround for me. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at the the rainbow avatar on Facebook or, you know, right after the Supreme Court made its decision and you saw the, the rainbow flags, you know, mine was the face mm. that you would have seen on those, you know, in those situations. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was a, it was a real um, worldview um, gestalt. Hmm. That's fantastic. Well, we're about out of time. <clears throat> so I wanted to ask you one last question. Um, one question that I ask basically all my friends, but then also to, I'm curious, what is next for you? And also the question I ask all my friends, what are you currently reading? <laughs> oh, what is and this can be book recommendations yeah. or it can be just simply what you read on the plane on yeah, the yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah, so, yeah yeah okay that's great that's great um well what is next is i am just a grassroots foot on the floor christian so what mm. is next is um is schooling my children mm. and um and supporting my husband and praying that the lord would grow our church mm. asking you all to pray that with me yeah um, living in the means of grace, um, um, embracing the means of grace, um, improving my Bible memory, uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's what's next. And, yeah. um, and on the plane, I am rereading uh, John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. That's great. Um, and then I'm reading a book that I'm supposed to review as well. Excellent. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. Well, Rosaria, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. We are, again, so encouraged, so blessed by your work. Oh. We pray that it would continue to be fruitful. So oh. thank you again we so much. We praise God together. Thank That's you, right. Scott. Amen. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed today's podcast, please visit us at cbmw.org, where you will find more resources to equip you to think biblically. We would also like to tell you about an exciting upcoming opportunity at CBMW. In April, we will be hosting a T4G pre-conference, The Beauty of Complementarity. The event will feature 27 speakers in two days, including John Piper, Jackie Hill Perry, Mary Cassian, Alistair Begg, and Darren Patrick. Please visit our website for more details. Again, thanks for listening.